Well, good morning, and thank you, Doyle, and all of you for this invitation to be a part, not just of today, but of this process, this conversation uh, that you'll be having at First Baptist over the next several weeks and even months that uh, will carry on implications for years to come. It's a privilege uh, to walk alongside you for that season in your life. Some of you I've met before. I was here for a deacon's uh, meeting a few months ago, and then leadership team, and now Good morning. (laughs) Nice to meet the rest of you. Hope you will be here uh, for lunch or after lunch. Promise you we'll get you out on time as scheduled. And uh, these are three conversations over the next few months that are critically important to the future of First Baptist. So thank you in advance for the effort it represents on your part to come and to talk and to share and listen and be a part of that conversation. As Dole said, I was a pastor for 35 years, youth minister, pastor, and in 2009 went to Wake Forest Hospital to lead the Center for Congregational Health, and then in the last year and a half have started the Center for Healthy Churches, which is not an oxymoron. Uh, it, healthy churches happen, and they are a joy to be around, and we have a privilege. I really do get wonderful opportunities every week to be a part of a congregation's life somewhere in the United States and beyond who are struggling and wrestling with, how do you do church in the 21st century? Because it's a different game, isn't it, than previously. And trying to retain and hold on to what makes this place amazing and push it forward into the uncertainty of the future is quite a challenge. But I hope you sense that it's also a wonderful, wonderful season in the life of the church when uh, the place of privilege has uh, effectively been lost, and now we get to be God's people on a mission. And that's always, I think, when we do our best work. And there's no question that the the culture is shifting. I was driving not long ago, and a car passed me on the interstate. This was the license plate. You know, personalized license plates are are big in some states. This particular state, Virginia, uh, it's 10 bucks to get a license plate that you design on your own, so every other car has one. Here's what it said. See if you're awake. The letters M-E-B, the number four, and the letter U. Okay? M-E-B for you. So what does that say? Good. Yep. One person here, so it's good. Me before you. Got it? And it sort of fits the interstate, right? Somebody passing you. But in that moment, I realized it really is not just about that car. It's it's about our culture. Wouldn't you agree? That that we live in a day where the the prevailing theme and thought is me before you. My my wants, my desires, my opinions, (laughs) they really do matter more than yours. I may smile and be quiet, but I'm just waiting for a chance to tell you the truth. Me before you. Now, that's a deep part of what it means to be a human being. We are incredibly narcissistic, self-focused, self-absorbed people. We always have been. You've seen it, right? When the, the camera pans across an audience at a sporting event, grown men, especially, and women, see the camera come, and what do they do? Sit quietly while the camera goes by them? No. They wave and they act like idiots. You would never do that, right? And I would never do that, except for that one time. 
a few years ago. You probably don't remember this. It was an Atlanta Braves game. I'm sorry, it wasn't the Royals or the Cardinals. It was the Braves. I was a youth minister in the day, and I took a group of families to the game. Back when the Braves were terrible, you could get good seats, cheap. We were down close. And about the fourth inning, a batter hit a ball into the stands. It came in like a rocket. No kidding. This is the kind that hurts people. Everyone dove for cover except me. True story. I stood up, the brash young star athlete, and I caught this line drive with my bare hands. I mean, it was hot. People were on the ground. I stand up. I make the catch. A friend told me later, literally, they focused the cameras on me and said, hey, that fan made a great catch. I caught the ball, and what did I do? Sat down quietly, and oh, no, I started posing. Where are the cameras? Look at me. Look at me. It was such a good catch, true story. The beer guy comes up to me down the steps and says, hey, buddy, great catch. Here's a free beer. So now I'm holding the ball and a beer on national television. I don't know what happened to the beer. I gave it to the deacon who was with me, and it it went away. I still have the ball at my moment of glory in the big leagues. Me, look, look at me. Look at what I did. There's something within all of us that, that craves the, the attention just to be recognized. Uh, the text we're looking at today, when John Glaypool preached a sermon about it, he called it the hunger for significance. And it's been around a long time. Everybody in this room's got a good dose of it. Look at me. Notice me. Now, the nice thing to understand is it's not simply our culture. It, it is human nature. This craving for the limelight is, is something that's been going on a while. We'll, we'll read about it here in a moment. To set this little set of verses in context, understand that earlier in Mark 9, the transfiguration of Christ has taken place. When, when he on the mountain was shrouded in glory and the three disciples who made the the inner circle and went up with him were stunned and wanted to stay and just live in the moment. But back home, the nine who didn't make the cut had, had gone out and tried to perform a miracle of healing, you can read about it in Mark 9, and struck out, but couldn't pull it off. Jesus comes down the mountain, bails them out, and their weakness. And then he sits and has a moment of teaching about the, the coming tribulation, what's going to happen in Jerusalem, and they're, they're not really listening. And then they get up and they, they walk over to the next little community, to Capernaum. And that's where we pick up the story. And in honor of God's word, would you stand please as we read Mark 9, verses 33 through 35. So then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, Hey, what were you arguing about on the way over here? But they were silent, because on the way they had argued with one another, 
Who was the greatest? So he sat down. And he called the twelve and he said to them, Look, whoever wants to be first of all must be last of all and servant of all. May God bless to our hearing and understanding these words from his word. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Be seated. Did you catch that? Arguing about who is the greatest. On the backside of the transfiguration and the power outage of their own, fussing about who gets the me before you license plate on their chariot. What are they, slow? Dense? Jesus has the first ever come to Jesus meeting. Here it is. Boys, have a seat. I'm going to add a little tone here. Sit down and be quiet. Your mom and dad ever talk to you like that? Have a seat. We need to have a conversation. And you knew, please, anything but that, the talk. This is the talk. What were you talking about? Everybody looks at the ground, just like in school when the teacher says, hey, who, who said that? Nobody says a thing. They, they were arguing about who was the greatest. And so he distills the gospel down into this pithy statement. My guess is the conversation was much longer than two sentences. But what we get is enough. Whoever wants to be first of all must be last of all. By the way, the Greek for that word is the word word diakonos, which sounds like and is the base and root word for the word deacon. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. Must be diakonos of all and servant. It's the same word, slave, servant, diakonos. Of all. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not determined by how many people serve you, but by how many people you serve. What a crazy idea. It was beyond their imagination, I I have no doubt. And my guess is, and I think we can make the case, that after this little come to Jesus conversation and the resulting illustration with the children, They rolled their eyes and said, right. That's not how you build a great church. That's not how greatness is determined in the world. Greatness is determined by how big your house is and how big the car is and how much money's in the bank account and how many people work for you. Greatness in the kingdom of God is determined by how beautiful your sanctuary is and how many people are here and how much money you got, right? I said, come on, Jesus. You've got to be kidding me. Now, the reason I know they were a bit skeptical and hard to convince is there's Mark 9 turns into Mark 10. The story continues. And in Mark 10, you find just a few days later, <laughs> James and John and their mama come calling. Remember that story? 
Mama shows up with the boys in verse 35 and says, go, 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 ask him. Uh, Jesus, can I be Secretary of State? He'd be Secretary of Defense. Can I have the best seat in the house? Can we get up there right in the circle of power? And, and Jesus says, no, boys, you have no idea what you're asking for. Are you really ready for this? Oh, we got it. We can do this. Now, now the others in verse 41 in chapter 10, the others are mad because they didn't think of it. They're always up there in the front of the line. Me before you. In verse 41, it says they were mad at James and John. See, the lessons of Mark 9 never penetrated the cultural resistance. And so in chapter 10, you have this interesting reprise of the theme. Verse 41, when the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. And so Jesus called them together again and said, Hey, look, you know that the Gentiles, among them, it's those who they recognize as rulers, lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. Yes, sounds familiar. But it's not so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your diakonos, servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave, diakonos, of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for men. Same song, second verse. Why are they so slow to get this? Why is this such a hard lesson? You tell me. (laughs) Why is it hard for us, not them, but us to understand that in Jesus' imagination of his church, It's not a contest to see who you can elbow out by saying me before you. It's a contest to say, as Paul described later, let's outdo each other in showing honor to one another. Why is that so hard? It's a message that didn't go down very well then and and doesn't go down very well in our culture, increasingly less so. But it is the church Jesus imagined. Greatness and his way of thinking, as opposed to ours and theirs, is about serving other people, not about being served. Jesus turns life upside down, inside out, gets it backward, reimagines things. Halford Luckook, in speaking about this text, said, Jesus stops the whole human parade and puts it into reverse. With the last end foremost, a servant at the head, and all the pompous kings who ever reigned, bringing up a tattered battalion at the rear. He redefines leadership. And purpose and meaning in life. And says you find your life when you give it. Come on. Not when you grab. 
You find it with an open hand, not a closed fist. You find meaning when you give yourself away. I'm not sure the message today is any harder, but it's certainly not any easier than it was then. Not in our part of the world, not in our part of Christendom, not as a minister. I've got to tell you, there's an awful lot of pressure just to kind of self-promote. Look at me. I'm in the pulpit. That's a great line. Um, after church one Sunday, the preacher's son was up in the pulpit, you know, doing like what little kids do, yelling in the microphone, hey, hey, look at me, I'm in the pulpit. And on the way out, one of the senior adults said to the friend, yeah, I've heard that sermon before. Yeah, could have been in my church. G.H. Joet was a great Methodist preacher who talked about the time that he went to preach as a guest and got a flowery introduction and he got up and he was coming up and the, the old boy who was introducing him said, let's pray before Dr. Joet preaches. And he prayed this simple prayer. Oh God, we ask you to reveal thyself and blot our messenger out. Do I really want to hear that prayer? Reveal thyself, blot me out? That's what he's suggesting here. Most of us have mixed motives, if we're honest. As a church, do you, do you really want to give yourself away to this community? Or don't you just want a little limelight? Couldn't we have some just a little bit? Could we get a little acclaimed coverage here? Couldn't we get a little more stuff out of this? Can I keep the license plate, Lord? The one bolted onto my life and yours that says me before anybody else. Jesus It's clear. Whoever wants to be great will need to be last. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he felt so strongly about this, and apparently it was such an issue with the disciples, like it is with us, that he didn't let go of it. See, these lessons, these teachable moments, were more teachable moments than they were learning moments. It didn't ever really come together for them until after the crucifixion. It takes that kind of a crisis to wake a church up, usually. But he took one last shot at him, you know. Over in John 13, his last night on earth with them, the last night that he had them, he gathered them, said, meet me up in the upper room, we'll, we'll talk. They're thinking, oh, yeah, sure, wonder what we're having for dinner. Oh, he had a surprise for him, all right. Think about it. It's his last, he knows it's his last teachable moment. From this point forward, everything will change. He wants to leave them with with something. What's the most important thing he can give them? How can he portray to them what this has all been about? You know what he did? John 13, they come in, they're expecting a fun evening, maybe some carry out, you know, we're going to have an evening together. 
And Jesus takes a basin of water, strips off his clothing, and kneels in front of them and begins to wash their dirty, stinking feet. Remember what Peter said? No, what, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? No, 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 no. If you're going to wash my feet, wash all of me. And Jesus says, be quiet, sit down, let me wash your feet. And my guess is, by the time he got all the way around the 12, it was a perfectly quiet room. And then he says, hey, do you know what what I just did for you? By the way, you ever had your feet washed in a foot washing ceremony? Anybody from that part of the world? I pastored up in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. My brethren friend invited me to a foot washing ceremony. I'm thinking, no. Mm. I went. As this act of service unfolded, I literally began weeping. As in this warm water, this young man began washing my feet. The humility I felt. It took me to the this upper room, saying, whoa, no, stop. You know what I've done for you, he said. You you call me teacher, Lord, you're right. That's what I am. But if I did this for you, then that's what I want you to do for other people. Now, he's not saying, I want you to go out and be a foot washing company. But he's saying, that's the Spirit. Remember back the children holding them up? Remember James and John? Remember all of that? Trying to make a point here, fellas. In my imagination, the church, you, are about serving. Not being served. And friends, that's a cold slap in the face for most Baptist churches in 2015. It's a rare church that I meet that does more than give lip service to that. But I'll tell you this, the churches I know that are thriving and are full of activity and energy and passion that cuts across all ages are the churches that get this. In Christ's imagination, his people serve first and are served second. Now beware, you start praying prayers like this and it gets a little dangerous. Because you basically say to God, you know, it's your church, it's not mine. Forgive me for ever saying my church, (laughs) it's where I attend. It's your church. What do you want us to become? That's a very different conversation today at 1215 than, hey, Doyle, Bill, here's my list of what I want our church to be. A lot of people have those lists. If they're not written down, they're right there, right? Here's what I want in my church. Here's the kind of music I want. I'll be like America's Voice judge. You know, and after church we go home and we have the pastor for lunch and we have the music for lunch. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not how he set it up. He set it up as a a group of people on a mission who lose themselves in the mission. 
A few years ago, I had a staff member at church in Virginia whose father had been a lifelong, just retired as a uh, policeman in Louisville, Kentucky. Beth's dad was a deacon at his church, and great guy, and he was down for a weekend, and I had dinner with he and his wife, and just making talk, and I said, so, um, t- tell me, he said, 37 years as a policeman, Louisville, I went to seminary in Louisville, was born there, my dad was in seminary, I know Louisville, my sister lives there, so tell me, what, what's the most exciting thing that ever happened to you as a policeman? Thinking I was going to hear something, you know, from like police going wild, or some dramatic story about a chase, or a shooting, or something, and he said, well, I'll tell you, Bill, I, 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 I'll tell you, I know exactly what it was, that I know where I was when it happened, the most interesting, exciting, moving thing that ever happened to me as a policeman, 37 years. Yeah, what was it? So, well, I was at Freedom Hall, which is the big, or was the big uh, arena where all the ball games were played and all the events took place. Seats about 16,000 people. I'm thinking, terrorist plot? I wonder what this was. He said, yeah, it was the night that Mother Teresa was in town and was speaking at Freedom Hall. I said, really? Mother Teresa? He said, yeah, it's a big crowd. A lot of people came to see her. Thinking, definitely a terrorist plot. Body shot, you know, he's going to take the blow. He said, it happened after she spoke. She's coming down through the, the kind of basement out to the car and about a dozen of us have an escort kind of for her. We're kind of walking in front. Then we stop and form two lines, and she walks between us to her vehicle. Yeah? Somebody rushes her. What, what happened, you know? He said she comes along, and she stops and starts walking up the line, shaking our hands. Now, you know, Mother Teresa is 4'11 or so, about 87 pounds. This tiny little woman. I'm still waiting for the big blow. (laughs) And he said, she came to each one of us. She came to me and she took my hand in her hands and gave me a blessing. And he starts tearing up. And he said, and her hands were like leather. And he said, that's the most significant thing that happened to me in 37 years as a policeman, Louisville, Kentucky. And now I'm tearing up. Because her hands were like leather, because why? She didn't just talk. She walked. And she used her hands. Now, I've got calluses on my hands, but they're from golf clubs <laughs> and garden tools. How about you? We could, yeah. Here's the church. Oh, here's the church. Yeah, that, that one, they're all buried. This one, they're... Here's the steeple. Open the door, and let's see everybody's hands. Let's check our hands today. Let's think about, have we really heard the gospel? Did we get it any more than the disciples did? We're going to find out over the next few weeks and months, quite honestly. Does our imagined future match his for us?
Now, the disciples finally got it, didn't they? They got it. Go read Acts 2, 42 to 47 or so, and they got it. They finally figured it out. They realized this isn't about us. Now, they had to be bitterly disappointed and crushed on the backside of the crucifixion, but that day when they discovered he was alive, they came to life as servants. They literally gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, we're not asking you to do that. <laughs> Relax. But we are asking you. Do you want to be a great church? Do you want to live a life that at the end people say, Oh, how will we live without her? How will we ever function without him? Do you want to be a church that people say, I don't know what our city would be like without First Baptist? Then be a servant. Check your hands. And ask God to use you in whatever way he can. In whatever way you will let him. To turn this world upside down. Because, friends, it needs it more than ever. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for getting this backward, for being like the disciples, for imagining that somehow this is about us. And might we find our hunger for significance to be answered by this dream you have of your people on a mission. To seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and then to let all the other things fall into place. And might we truly, in this season of life, beginning with every heart in this room, give ourselves wholly to you and your mission. And then see where you take us. Give us that kind of trust and obedience in this hour and in the days to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.